What's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. What's happening, man? Yo, man. It's been seven weeks since we had a traditional What's the Headline. So it's great to be back. And this was kind of a last-minute decision for you and I to do this, although we brought, you know, we, we came prepared as always. Yeah, that's that's crazy. It's been seven weeks. I mean, part of that has been summertime. Right. And we've taken a, a lighter schedule in the summertime. We're going to get back to our regular cadence now that like the fall is here and school's back in session. Life is back in session. But part of it is also because we've had some great guests in the last couple of weeks. We had Mayhem Loren and Derringer uh, and then before that Diamond D. So uh, really awesome to talk to those guys. But yeah, it's been a minute, man. It's pretty crazy. For sure. And, you know, one thing that I always pride and it's something I learned from you is, you know, the fourth wall is we always respect people's time and their attention. And if there's nothing significant to talk about um, and we don't have anything compelling to add to the conversation, we sit back and, and kind of let um, other vessels within AFH, you know, the site, the playlist, you know, do what they do. And that's always, I think, one of our uh, secrets to success. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's only one moment that I regret us not discussing, and that's the J-verse. You know, uh, I think we did a pretty comprehensive article covering it, and so we had our, our stake in the ground. But it would have been great to chop chop it up with you because we, we had differing opinions on that, right? Yeah, and and as sometimes it happens with you, I, uh, I came around on the song. When I first heard it, um, you know, I... I'll full admit full admission. I wasn't even sure it merited site coverage, you know, at that time. Um, and boy, oh boy, you know, and it, it says a lot where hip hop is right now. And, you know, I know that we're living in a time where Drake and Kanye and Eminem and Dr. Dre, there's a lot of people that don't do press. And I think Jay is one of them, but this was a case where not just Jay, but Young Guru and, and certainly big shout out to Rob Markman, um, watching a few folks come forward and really show the power of annotating a verse and breaking it down, 100% um, true of, of, of Jay's part of God did. Let me ask you a question on that, though. Um, you know, obviously, you and I are both fans of, of Ross, Rick Ross, Lil Wayne, various points in their career. Is this a song that you wish was just Jay? So I'll say a couple of things, you know, first of all, um, you know, what you said is true. And it's interesting. Like, I love like, you know, just like being transparent about our process, you know, because I think that one of the things that makes you and I such a good partnership is uh, we have, I say our concentric circle is about 60%, you know, um, and then, the, but the other 40% is very complimentary. Uh, we talk about all the time how we tend to gravitate to the same albums, but different songs in those albums. And uh, I think that our process is different too. And, you know, a lot of times we're like completely on the opposite sides of the spectrum because you didn't think it warranted coverage. I thought it was the best verse of the year, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and <laughs> so uh, there was a lot of ground in there, but as we talked about it, we found the common ground. And I think we both aligned on, it wasn't necessarily Jay's most artfully delivered uh, verse. You know, he's got like tons of verses where he smashes it, you know, his flow is crazy, like he's in the pocket, um, super witty, the whole nine. For me, it was about what he was saying. Um, and when you start to break down what he's saying, 
you know, a lot of it we heard before, the, the racks of riches, you know, uh, streets to like uh, boardrooms banter, but then the, the, the chatter about um, criminal justice reform and stuff like that really separated it. And to your point, when Guru broke it down and started talking about, yes, there's two levels to every JSON, but actually there's a third too, where he's just talking to his inner crew. And there's stuff that he's saying very directly to us that you will never ever understand unless you're part of the crew. That was mind blowing too, you know, along with the one take J, you know, um, I've had a theory, you know, people say he doesn't write his rhymes. Um, I've always thought that he probably just recited them in his head over and over again until he got it, you know, so it's not like he's just going in and freestyling and, you know, he kind of confirmed that too, which was cool. But to your question, um, it's interesting. The way that I think about this is like Big Sean's control uh, <laughs> yep. because like people don't even remember it was Big Sean's song, right? Yeah. Like uh, it was just, and, and who else was on it, right? It was, Electronic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm saying, but no one remembers that, right? No, right. people just remember Kendrick. Um, and that's how this song has gone down. Like when you listen to it on the radio, they cut the Wayne and Ross verses off. Uh, they just start with Jay. It, yeah. They start with Kyla and then go straight to Jay. So do I wish that uh, it was only Jay? Nah, because it feels like it's only Jay anyway. You know what I mean? Um, and, you know, I appreciate Ross and, and Wayne's verse. Ross is even more. Uh, but this is clearly Jay's song. What about you? You think it should have just been a Jay solo? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny you mentioned Control um, because that's the last time I thought that this happened in a song. And, you know, it's funny. There's a, a site out there, uncut.com, and he used to make edits where he would take weak verses off of songs and they would cause... A lot of frustration, you know, especially among the hardcore hip hop community when artists got blocked. You know, I think I think Wayne and Ross are cool. I don't think they necessarily belong on the song. I think it would be great just as Jay. And that's really cool. You and I spent a recent episode, uh, the Funk Flex and Pete Rock and Conway episode, where we spoke a lot about radio. And um, I have not once heard God did on radio, but I also haven't been you know, listen, I've been listening to serious radio, you know, satellite. I haven't been listening to terrestrial. So that's cool that that's what they're doing. I assume you mean in New York or do you mean serious? Yeah, I mean, in, oh, I have heard it on Shade 45, uh, but but I was talking about Power 105. Wow. Um, cool. Yeah, they, they go straight from DJ Khaled's intro to Jay's verse. They don't play the whole verse because, you know, on radio now you get like, you know, a minute and a half or whatever. But uh, but that's all you hear is Jay on the song. One other thing I'll add to is the day that that, you know, album, Khaled's album and verse released, um, you know, I'll, I'll put this out there. I finally got COVID. I had not had it in, you know, since the pandemic. There was a chance, you know, I, I know a lot of us think, oh, maybe in late 2019, you know, I was really sick. That, that may have happened. But this is the first time I tested positive. And, and you know, thank you. Got, got through it, whatever. Easy. But fatigue and my head was a little bit cloudy and even even in our conversation with mayhem and derringer on the playback i'm watching and i'm like you're not a hundred percent you know um so maybe that is my excuse on not grasping jay correctly the first time i'm I'll, trying I'll to put it card. on covid fog really like okay <laughs> <laughs> i'll give you that i'll yeah. give you that yeah uh so may uh, yeah <laughs> You lost your sense of taste for sure. <laughs> Yo, you kept asking me that. And, and I was like, you're dissing me. And you're like, no, I'm just checking in on you. And you were real cryptic about it. Um, but, to, but one final note. I mean, 
the amazing thing of Jay, like any artist, like Miles Davis, like DJ Premier, Jay has phases of, of, of artistry. And, you know, there was that phase where a lot of people said, I think around American Gangster, where he was using, you know, a, cro uh, a flow that a lot of people attributed to young Chris, especially you heard that argument a lot in Philly. Um, you know, early in Jay's career, he had the, you know, Daz effects, Fushnikens, you know, syllable style. Jay's current style is one I'm still warming up to. And I believe I've said that before on this platform. And you're absolutely right. I mean, his substance may have never been better. But obviously, you know, there's part of me that misses Jay, um, you know, more in that Rock La Familia blueprint era where he was completely in pocket and, and had production that sometimes was as grabby as his verses. But, you know, I, I can't I can't change where the artist is and I just need to appreciate it. And I certainly have with God did a lot more over the last three weeks. So it's interesting because we wrote an article. You wrote it. Um, I think I suggested it. Um, maybe it was a while ago maybe five six years ago mm -hmm. called sometimes i rap fast sometimes i rap slow how uh jay-z has changed his cadence over time um you know i liken it almost like tiger woods like changing his his, his uh you know golf swing um and he's done it very intentionally i think to stay current and relevant and you know he, you know uh what is on uh, uh on to the next one where he says like uh brothers want my old flow uh, buy my old album you yeah. know um he's he's very very intentional about that and i think that's why he's remained as relevant for as long as he has um you know for me uh, well, well let me ask you this you said rock La familia blueprint era so you're talking 2001 into what like 2004 that's your favorite flow era, j flow yeah even during his retirement post post black album um and i have a theory too if i may i think that jay has changed his flow post 2013 because he you know he brought in some of the best producers ever i mean you look at the black album that's a dream team lineup jay you know helped make just blaze and kanye west you know forget kanye as a rapper but one of the most sought out producers ever he's done that with other people um, and then you look at Magna Carta Holy Grail, which, you know, had a, a really big lineup of people around it. And to me, that was Jay's weakest album, um, my opinion. And now I feel like 444 on, he's used very sparse productions. No idea is a legend. But when I think of 444, it's Jay's show with great music that complements him. But it's Jay is up here and the music is down here. And I think that was true of the Carter's album. And I think Think that's true of a lot of the a la carte kind of j moments on soundtracks and feature verses we've gotten since but you may agree you may disagree so i think um i agree and, and i'll also say that jay's flow you know uh post coming back you know dear summer was kind of like the last song for me that was like super like it was the end of an era in terms of that that particular flow and I think that flow for me started in 96 because don't forget, like he had a flow before that too, you know, mm -hmm. with, um, with um, Jazz O and the originators, yeah. like he had that like double time, like, and that was original wasn't my, flavor, like that yeah. flow show and prove with Kane. It lasted a while. That wasn't my favorite flow either. Right. You know, for me, it was 96, like reasonable doubt through dear summer and like there, like pretty much. Every, you know, Jay always has variety, but like he was just in the pocket in a different way in that era. 
I will say there have been times where he has pulled that flow back out. Uh, and the one that I'm thinking about is Bam on uh, 444, where he said, fuck out that pretty shit, my yeah. hove. Like, and yeah. like, he just destroys that. Just, And I think he does that intentionally just to like, let people know, yo, when I want to do this, I can do this, you know? Um, but so I, I guess to your, your bigger point, like it wasn't my favorite flow on God did either. Um, it definitely, you know, it was really just about the substance for me and the entendre, you know? Yeah. And I, I made a comparison last year, you know, I really feel like Jay, you know, Jay grabbed dinner. It looked like on Instagram anyway, last year, maybe the year before with Makami, you know, I feel like Jay is paying attention to the rock Marcianos, the, a lot of the artists that are driving culture right now that may or may not seem underground or, you know, a connoisseur rap to use Justin Hunt's, you know, term that, that you and I both, you know, like and adhere to. It's interesting. And yeah, you're right. I think Bam is a great example. And maybe Drug Dealers Anonymous. He, he kind of hit the switch and went back into that. Yeah, you know, and since you bring Justin up, um, we ran a piece of his recently. Uh, the company man has been a long term affiliate of AFH. Um, you know, he has done video for us for a long time. Um, he's back to doing his TVDs, which I thoroughly enjoy. I often disagree with him. Um, and it's great because I, I think Justin is a fantastic intellect in hip hop and brings a lot to the table. And it's great to have a, opposing viewpoints. And I'm a big fan of Real Time with Bill Maher. Like I like shows where people don't try to tell you that their um, word is the word. They give you a perspective and then bring in other perspectives so you can make the decision yourself for what you wanna believe. And for me, Justin like is a, a great foil for that, you know, just like you and I are, are good foils too. And he wrote, he did a piece, a video piece about Jay uh, recently and the Twitter chat that he had afterwards uh, kind of arguing that Jay was out of touch and a, a billionaire. And I wanted to include the piece, one, because it's just very well done. Um, but two, because I think it captured something that our audience feels a lot of times that Jay has been out of touch. You talked about Magna Carta, Holy Grail being his worst album. I think a lot of people feel that way uh, because he's talking about like, you know, high art and like, you know, $900 bottles of wine and just like a super like luxurious lifestyle. Um, my, and 444, you brought that down a little bit and uh, really tried to be more of an advisor rather than lording his like uh, greatness over people, you know, for me, the problem I've always had with that. And, and so Justin's piece was about Jay-Z being a billionaire too long and being out of touch with reality because Jay said, what do you remember what Jay said that like kind of sparked the, the piece? Yeah, I mean, in his conversation, and he was having, it was a direct moment with Rob Markman, um, and again, one of the better, I think it's 14 or 17 minutes long pieces, but Jay makes a point that, you know, he uses racist terms that were, you know, used against especially Black folks over time, and, and being sold the American dream, but also being called slurs and, and being denied some of those rights that others had. And then he he makes the comparison and says, now I'm called things like a capitalist. And he also mentions the term eat the rich, which I think we've seen a lot, um, you know, in Occupy Wall Street on into some of the recent, you know, racial protests in America. And he kind of decries that and, and, and basically says like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that people resent him for his success and that being successful 
is a label that is now kind of a disparaging term. And, um, and Justin, um, well, a lot of people, Justin reflected a lot of people's sentiment that Jay was um, out of touch, you know, for saying those things. For me, I actually think that Jay was spot on, you know, and I actually think it goes back to Magna Carta, Holy Grail. When you step back and think about what Jay was doing on that album, to me, he was doing the exact same thing he's done on every other album, except the source of his income was different. You know, on Reasonable Doubt, he's talking about like, you know, all the, the, the champagne he, he has, the, the cars he's driving, Big Willie style, Big Willie flow. Like, you know, he's, he's bragging about the money that he has. And he did, he's done that consistently throughout his career. And the way that he achieved it was through selling drugs. And people celebrated that. When a Magna Carta Holy Grail, he flipped it to be more authentic to who he is now and said, I'm making money from corporate things and I'm, I'm in the fine art and like, um, you know, all these other things, people like kind of like, you know, poo-pooed it. And I was, I, for me, it was like, this is crazy. Like this dude is celebrated when he is talking about making money through a life of crime. But when he is talking about like legit, like actual wealth through actual enterprises, people have a problem with it like that that's to me that was fucked up like i mean mm. it's like okay this guy like are, what are we celebrating here are we celebrating criminal activity or we are you know um or are we celebrating uh, wealth and if it's the latter why is that not cool if it's through legitimate means you know and so um i just thought it was a double standard and a weird a weird kind of uh juxtaposition and um you know, I can I, I'm, I'm down with like not liking the flow or the music, but if it's the substance that you're talking about, he's been consistent about that the whole time. And he's been authentic about it. So um, that's my problem with it. And I do think he takes a lot of hate. I think that it's just natural that people love to build people up to a certain success level. And then once they get successful, they want to tear them down. We've seen that very clearly with Kendrick, um, you know, who we've supported from the very beginning. And now that he's achieved a certain level of success, he's getting a little bit of blowback. Um, I think Drake, people were rooting for him in the so far uh, gone days, you know, when he dropped the mixtape and then when he achieved mega success, people started hating on him. It's just, it's, you know, it, it's, it's across the board. Kanye, we see it in a lot of different places. And I think that Jay is no different. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. And, you know, I personally, um, I've always, admired Jay's aspirational raps. Like they've been inspiring to me, you know, whether he was talking about leveling up through the streets or through the boardrooms. And that's something that has been, you know, a, a, a lighthouse, you know, to me at different points, like, like what would Jay do? Um, apart from just being a great MC and I've never resented Jay from that. I do think he was more out of touch with Magna Carta Holy Grail than he is in this verse. And one of the things that I feel is very different about Jay from 2013, which we may have never known about. I mean, Jay, <clears throat> there's a lot of stories of the ways that he has supported just artists behind the scenes and charities. Um, you know, one, one of the rumors that I'll just use him as an example, a lot of people said that Jay, I believe, stepped in to help with Sean Price, um, you know, after he passed, making sure there was an adequate, you know, funeral and things like that. Um, but Jay's been very, uh, you know, mentioning justice, criminal justice reform, look no further than I believe it was 2016, maybe 2017, where on Father's Day, you know, he, he bailed all of those men that were out um, 
on very low dollar, you know, uh, bail and bonds out. Like he walks it like he talks it. And to me, I can't, you know, it's people that make a bunch of money and then don't do anything about it other than hoard it. And Lord knows there's enough of that in this world um, that we can see. And I think Jay is very altruistic. Yeah, I mean, I had a problem when uh, he joined ranks with the NFL after like the cop, the, the Kaep supporting Kaepernick for so long. Um, you know, now that I've seen what he's done with that platform, like uh, I respect it. You know, I don't think we, we would have had the Emmy award winning Dr. Dre Super Bowl performance. You know, we got people crip walking like at the Super Bowl. We, it is a celebration of Compton and, uh, you know, the success that, that Dre has built too. Uh, I don't think we have that on the, the world's biggest stage. Um, and I believe that they've done a lot of community service stuff too, you know, but that was the, the that was a time where I was like, huh, scratching my head. But, you know, again, he, he showed that there's a, he had a, a strategy for that too. Yeah. And, and Justin made that point And I thought it was interesting too, because Jay on one hand went from wearing a Kaepernick Jersey on SNL to probably one of the more regrettable quotes, regardless of what Jay's done to say, we, you know, we're past That's kneeling. That. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure if you asked Jay and if you or I spoke to him, it'd be a great question in an interview of would you have said that differently in retrospect? Um, and Jay's, you know, been honest from misogyny to other things in his career that, you know, as you or I, as men or as human beings, I'm sure we'd like to do differently in retrospect. So, um, yeah, uh, interesting, interesting fodder. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Well, uh, I'm glad we got to chop it up on that uh, a little bit. It's probably the last word. The verse, uh, I think, will stand the test of time. I believe what it's going to end up as being the uh, the best verse of the year, or definitely the most impactful verse of the year. We should, um, uh, I'll say, we'll see. Um, you know, we might get another Black Thought type verse in December, like we did a few years ago. But uh, for now, that's my favorite. Interesting. I'm still going to give it up to um, Cole. J. Cole. Yeah. yeah. You know, Cole on, on Benny's album, uh, Johnny P's Caddy. And, and Benny's verses right there too. Um, but there's been a number of great ones this year. And, and I, I keep coming back to, I sent it to you yesterday, Scarface's verse on Street Made, the DJ Mug song with Freddie Gibbs is, you know, right up there with anything Face has ever spit. And it's a great year for hip hop, but yeah, I digress. For sure. Well, um, there've been a lot of controversial statements made this year, many of which have come on Drink Champs. You know, which uh, shout out to Drink Champs, um, Nori and DJ EFN. Um, EFN is uh, also a, a great friend to AFH. Uh, we worked with him when we had AFH TV, our subscription service, and he um, allowed us to use his documentaries as part of our content uh, and has always been a great supporter of AFH. Uh, shout out to them because they have gone to a whole different level over the last year or so. You know, I think the Kanye interview, like, you know, set them on fire or Gotti recently. And um, there was a Black Star uh, episode featuring Dave Chappelle that dropped on Friday. Uh, it was a long term, not long time coming. We heard about this maybe three months or so ago and it was supposed to drop, I think, beginning of, of July or so and didn't come out until September. Uh, and looking at it, it seems like, or listening to it, it, sound, it seems like there were some pretty substantial edits there. You know, uh, I don't think we got the full thing. There's only a couple topics discussed and it didn't have the typical kind of drink champs flow, you know. Um, so either there's a part two coming or else, you know, for whatever reasons, 
Uh, there's some stuff that was held back that we'll never get a chance to hear. But there was obviously some compelling stuff in that. Um, we wrote... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A couple pieces. Um, Jake did a piece on Kanye West. Um, most F really talking about how he knew Kanye was going to be a star early on before a lot of people acknowledge that. And not just as a producer, but as a, a rapper and overall. Um, the piece that really struck me, though, was... Nori uh, made a statement. He talked about uh, a Source magazine cover that came out in 1999 that had Mostef, Black Thought, and Pharaoh Monch on it. And the cover was the over and underground. And Nori's point was that um, he said that he called, he said, okay, cool. This is the moment when backpack rap arrived and had kind of gone to the forefront. Um, and most had a, a reaction to that. You want to talk about that? Yeah, um, you could tell, so Drink Champs is audio only at this point, and you can kind of hear Yasin Bey, you know, most deaf, shrug, like it's an audio shrug, and he, the one, uh, you know, the thing he says is, I guess, you know, because um, that term is, is you want to talk about disparaging, um, and then Nori doubles down, uh, well, well, most uh, says, you know, it was a term that people came up with to try and like label us. I get where people are coming from, but it never stuck because it didn't have any gravity to it. And then Talib Kweli makes a great point. He was like, look, I grew up in Flatbush, Flatbush, Brooklyn, and that's a two fair zone back at the time. So if you left the house for to go to a party or two or to go to an open mic, you're kind of packing for hours. So you're going to have your music. You're going to have maybe change of clothes, you know, whatever, whatever. And that's why you saw all these people, you know, in the Lower East Side at Fat Beats, at the New Yorican, you know, wearing backpacks. And the term kind of stuck, kind of stuck. Um, and the conversation gets a little bit, you know, broader of, you know, where did it originate from? And two other artists that are mentioned, um, and I think that Kwali makes the point is Grand Puba and, and Black Moon, you know, um, Buckshot, Evil D and 5FT. And I think that's interesting, too, because, you know, Puba is one of the true fashion pioneers, you know, helped make Tommy Hilfiger uh, cool for a while. I think he was one of the guys that kind of brought in the Tim's with shorts look. And then, you know, boot camp click are also between the camo um, backpacks, that whole aesthetic. You know, those guys are pioneers, too. So Yeah. Talib's point was that, you know, because where Nora was going with it was he was suggesting that backpacks were aligned with kind of the raucous sound, kind of suburban kids who, um, you know, were just doing it like, you know, super conscious the whole nine. And Talib's point was, nah, man, this was New York. Like, you know, dudes like Poobah and Black Moon, to your point, who were not necessarily aligned with that movement, you know, might have like, you know, the, the strap in the backpack. 
Buckshot uh, had a line about that yeah, on end of the stage. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it what he was saying backpack, you know, having a backpack wasn't a symbol of like your belief system or anything like that. It was just practical or fashionable. So and one of the things that, that kind of brought the conversation there, you alluded to the Kanye point that, you know, Yasin had made, you know, last year when Kanye was on Drink Champs, um, you know, he made a host of 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 really interesting remarks. And, you know, he spoke about fashion a lot as, you know, I think is as much a Kanye passion as music at this point. And he made a disparaging remark about moving past the backpack and using that early in his career. And we did. If you go back to the college dropout era, you know, Kanye was the Louis Vuitton Don. He, he had a backpack. It just so happened it had LVs on it. Um, and he used that to, I think, be an extension of himself. But he made a remark about putting the backpack down. And Nori and EFN mentioned that at the time, Bootcamp Click, you know, I don't know if it was Buck or Smith and Wesson, they wanted on Drink Tramps to kind of respond to that and 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 speak their piece as somebody who I think made that a vessel for Ye. Yeah, and that was kind of like Ye, Ye growing past the backpack was kind of like Jay growing past the throwback, right? He was like, you know. Yeah. Uh, something throwback uh, brothers button up like you know yeah. like we're growing up so let's do the uh, you know the button up now so Nori though says he said you know but Nori like kind of he comes back at quality and says you know let me tell you where backpacks became frowned upon he said back backpacks and gangster culture um, existed you know simultaneously in the 90s um, you know basically everyone ran in the same circles but then he goes, there was one video though. It was one video and, um, you know, and it was basically the video that he said separated things. It's the thing that like fractured hip hop into two between backpack slash underground or conscious and gangster rap and, you know, and, and or, you know, more commercial or like hardcore rap. And it's, that was the roots, what they do video. And for those who don't recall, that video uh, was uh, the roots, you know, who were very, very, um, you know, uh, not about gang culture or like, you know, street culture or anything like that. They were just like regular dudes from Philly for the most part. That was them lampooning or parodying all the like tropes found in hip hop videos at the time. You know, dudes sitting around pools, sipping champagne, uh, women like you know uh, dancing like scantily clad around them, driving in the in the like luxurious whip. Uh, the dudes like running into the street, like you know rhyming on the rooftop, like everything that you saw in hip hop videos, they put in the one um, in a way that was meant to uh, poke fun at that and just talk about how corny it was. Interesting thing is if you go back and look at it now, which I did, and you have no context as to what the roots represented. It just looks like a regular rap video, uh, which is crazy because it, it was so jarring at the time, but now it just looks completely normal. So that to me said a lot. But um, Nori said that, you know, you know, you know what that video did? Um, he said everything that represented you, you just dissed everything that represented gangster. Um, and so he thought that he says that that was a moment where he and presumably his peers looked at it and said, oh, okay, that's what you think about us. You know, like, I'm not cool with that. And Nori made another point, you know, that in that video, which is directed by Charles Stone III, who went on to direct uh, Paid in Full and, and, you know, some other, you know, major films. Um, Budweiser, What's Up commercials. Yeah, oh, the award? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, 
that, you know, specifically there's a sequence where there's an artist running through the projects. And Nori says back at the time, I mean, Nori's from Lafrac City, Queens. You know, certainly there's a number of project houses around there. And, you know, this Queens. So he was talking a lot to Nas. They were working together in those days. And Nas took umbrage with it. In a 2011 uh, Pitchfork interview, Questlove says that that ruffled Biggie's feathers. And Biggie was one of the biggest champions of The Roots. One thing I will say that I disagree with you a little bit on, I do think that The Roots represent the streets. Um, you know, the streets of Philly, and I think their aesthetic, I think Black Thought's aesthetic, particularly is a lot like Kendrick's, where he can very much rap being there in the first person, but he doesn't make himself the villain or the main character. The Roots were never, in my opinion, about glamorizing, you know, uh, you know, foreigners ripping up their green cards. Like, they were never the villains, but they very clearly, you know, Malik B, rest in peace, too, did the same. Well, um, some of the roots, right? Tariq and Malik. Yeah. But Quest was not that, you know, right. Quest and, you know, Captain Kirk probably like they had different elements. They were they were not in any. I guess what I would say is even if they came from the streets, they weren't repping themselves like an N.W.A. or, um, you know, someone like that. They weren't rapping about uh shooting people and, and violence and stuff like that they presented a very different kind of image yeah i mean there's an accessibility there um to your point but i mean nori was saying that that was very specific to you know a, a shot and you know Questlove said in that 2011 conversation with pitchfork like you know he was like i was mostly asleep through the whole video like they just told us what to do we like the treatment boom 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 um, so, okay, Nori makes this point. What's your initial takeaway? I thought it was really, really interesting. I never thought about it like that. You know, it was designed to parody, right? And anytime you parody someone, um, it, you know, you're, you're poking fun at them and it might come with consequences. And it, it made me think about, you know, Common saying things uh, on um, I Used to Love Her that set Ice Cube and others off whenever these guys who are critiquing hip hop, right? For its stereotypes, whether it be an audio form like, like uh, what Rashid did and uh, used to love her or video form what the Roots did, you're gonna get a response because you are talking about someone else's work and whether it's authentic or not, you know, they might take it that way. So it, it, it resonated with me that that could have caused a division. And I've always looked at the what they do video and, and full disclosure, you know, I was 12 years old when that video came out. I, you know, I remember that was around the time when I discovered, you know, the roots for myself. Um, you know, I'm not going to, you know, front like I was there for organics and bought Illadelph Half-Life the day it came out. But one of the things that I've realized about that video is it's kind of an homage to a video three years prior by De La Soul, Ego Trip in Part 2. And, he, you know, De La, who are also, you know, not above lampooning, you know, trends in rap. They did that from, you know, their first album, especially on their second album. Um, and they, you know, they, there you go. Boom. Yeah. Stakes is high. And if I'm not mistaken, you know, the commentary on Ego Trip in part two ruffled feathers. I mean, De La ended up, you know, in the years that followed kind of in a conflict with Tupac. And there's a great article on Ambrosia for Heads, I think from 2016 about that. Um, so yeah, you're gonna, when you make commentaries on the culture, you're gonna ruffle feathers. I have to say, um, I think it's a, a great video. I think it's a great song. You know, 
Talib Kweli makes the point to Nori. He says, that sounds personal. Mm. And that was kind of how I reacted. And when Nori qualifies it by mentioning the project houses, saying, yes, it can be any projects, but look who was on top of the game right then. You had Nas. Capone and Noriega, you know, were making moves, but the war report wasn't out when that video came out. Um, I do. I, I think it sounds a little personal. And I certainly don't think that was the moment. That was the watershed you know, are you on this side or that side moment for culture? So I thought it was interesting. And what it really sparked for me was a post that Ninth Wonder uh, did back in, I think it was 2017, mm -hmm. where he posted that hip hop fractured on a different time. And by the way, so the Roots um, released the single for what they do in November of 1996. So I'm assuming the video was around that time too, because mm -hmm. the singles and the videos tended to come out within a few weeks of each other. Um, and so, but in July of 1996, July 2nd, there were two albums that re were released on the same day. One was, it was written by Nas and the other was Stakes Is High um, uh, by De La Soul. And Ninth claimed that that was the day that hip hop fractured. And he said that, you know, what, what happened was you had Nas who had had a real street, gritty, authentic album uh, produced by DJ Premier, um, Large Professor, Pete Rock, Q-Tip, and Illmatic, his, his debut in 1994. Transition from that to an album that was much more polished, shiny, intended for commercial radio. Uh, the videos were, you know, Hype Williams directed and, you know, big budget and, and fancy and glossy. So Nas transitioned from, you know, this authentic kind of like underground, like street hero to Escobar, you know, uh, it was, he was in Esco mode and like really going for the big swings, commercial type success, kind of similar to what Jay did between Reasonable Doubt and, um, and was it in my lifetime? Um, yeah, volume one. Yeah. Volume one. And by contrast, you had De La, who had been like, you know, commercial darlings with me, myself and I and, you know, um, Saturdays and stuff like that. Even though they had declared hip hop dead on their second album, they went all the way um, down that rabbit hole with Stakes is High. Uh, they had Jay Dilla and uh, complete, created a completely different sound. And on Stakes is High, talked about like the crisis that hip hop was in because of um, a lot of the, the stereotypes and like uh, foolishness that, that they uh, stuff that they deemed to be foolishness that was happening in the industry. So they're going from commercial to underground. And it was almost uh, a sense that you had to like choose sides. That was Ninth's argument. Uh, but you want to you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of just was one of those dividing lines too of, of which side are you on? And I think that, you know, and it's funny because it comes up in the Drink Champs conversation and the Yassine Bay part. I think, you know, a lot of us can recall a similar this or that moment, maybe um, this week, actually, the, the, the second week of September, first week of September 2007 with, you know, Kanye's graduation or 50 Cent's Curtis. And those guys very deliberately made it a sales battle, made it a commercial rally cry. But I can vividly remember and Justin Hunt, again, did a did a really dope piece back in 2017, the 10 year anniversary of what side are you on? Because I had friends that were like, no, you know, we want to see gangster rap as we know it, you know, this kind of, you know, what everything that 50 Cent and G-Unit represented prevail. We want more of that. 
And there were other people um, that I think were really jockeying for Kanye in one of his most creative periods and what that represented. And not for nothing, I mean, on that album, Kanye has, you know, Yasin Bey Mostef. He's got production, co-production by Knotts. He's got, you know, DJ Premier doing scratches on Everything I Am. Like, it was another, like, which side of, you know, kind of a tug of war of hip hop. And there's, you know, there have been other cases of that um, throughout the years. But yeah, definitely in 96. I mean, I didn't buy either album the day it dropped out, you know, on, J- on July 2nd. Did you? Did you buy either I, of those? I bought, I bought both. And uh, I was supremely disappointed with with um, It Was Written. Like it's still probably my least favorite album by Nas. I could probably go back to it now and listen to it with fresh ears. and I'd like it more. But it was such a disappointment because it did feel like he was selling out and was completely different from Illmatic. And that was definitely the the, the vibe for a lot of uh, Nas fans at the time, um, at, at least those who came up through Illmatic. If you came in through It Was Written, you probably liked it much more. But if you started with it was with uh, Illmatic, for me, it was a split. But before I, I want to ask you where you because that's an interesting point you raise about like uh, Kanye versus 50. Uh, so this is uh, 11 years later. So you're now uh, 23. Were you team Kanye or team uh, 50 at that point? Team Kanye all day, you know, and at yeah. that point in my career, you know, I was interfacing with 50 Cent um, a decent amount. You know, I, I interviewed him, I believe, during that run. Um, did not interview Kanye. But yeah, I mean, to me, I, I'm I'm a beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy person is my favorite Kanye album. But Graduation, I would say, might be his best album. Now, is that because of the music or was it the personalities? Because for me, I was seeing Kanye too. Uh, and it's so ironic that this is the case. But back then, Kanye was the underdog and he was the, the humble dude and you wanted him to win. 50 was the, the juggernaut and the bully and like, you know, seemed like the Goliath. And so I was rooting for Kanye uh, even more on the personality side than 50. Uh, but, you know, it sounds crazy to think of like Kanye in that way at this point. Well, it's funnier, too, to me, because, you know, and, and I was a little bit closer to the action. Um, you know, 50 Cent has always been one of the nicest people you ever meet. Like when I Absolutely. think of A-list hip hop superstars, um, 50 Cent is one of those people that, you know, like Snoop Dogg, like T.I. is a cult of personality. Um, and, and immediately likable. And I haven't, you know, I, I've been in rooms with Kanye. I, I've not had a, a long conversation with him or anything like that. But even at that time, you know, Kanye was still outspoken. You know, he hadn't done the Taylor Swift thing. That was still two years away. Um, but Kanye was not above, you know, uh, a public display here or there. And that being said, like 50 Cent is kind of the nice guy to me. But just in the name of hip hop, I was rooting for graduation. By the time that that album arrived, um, you know, Can't Tell Me Nothing was out, which is to this day one of my favorite Kanye songs, period. And I am 99.9% sure that Stronger was out. And that was an amazing record. And to see, you know, um, hip hop merge with Daft Punk, you know, on a sample in 2007 and make a song that could take the culture in a different direction, I thought was really interesting. And not for nothing, I mean, you know, I was looking at the kids in the hall at the time and the Pactives and the UNIs out of Inglewood. And I thought that there was a whole class of, of, of hip hop artists that were going to benefit if Kanye prevails. Um, and, you know, I, I like 50 Cent's music. Um, 
I did not think Curtis was a great album. I didn't like I Got Money, even with Jay-Z on the remix. Um, and I was just tired of that. I felt like there was a lot of really pedestrian rappers that were winning because of 50, because he had a story and because he wasn't above bullying. And I was tired of that. I wanted the art to, to win. So that's a long answer to a short question. Kids in the Hall, School Was My Hustle is one of my favorite mixtapes that year. It's, see, that's the thing. Like, you and I were in completely different worlds, but still, like, rocking to the same music at that point, you know. Um, to your point, like, I've met both Kanye and 50, uh, um, 50 only once, but Kanye on a few occasions. Kanye was always super gracious and humble, um, you know, in, in, in my presence. And, you know, we had, like, real regular conversation. And one of the greatest music experiences I had was, there's this place called The Box um, in, in New York, and it holds maybe 300, 400 people. And Kanye did like an album, uh, like a live performance album preview of My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And afterwards was just down walking around talking to people. And uh, he was asking me, you know, how I like the music. And we chopped it up for like five minutes or so. It was a real cool conversation. Um, 50. We did a show with him at BET. Uh, first of all, probably the best smelling artist I've ever been around. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> he, uh, whatever cologne he rocks, you know, he, uh, yeah, he, uh, uh, so, but also real, real chill, nice dude, you know, um, laid back, humble, uh, very different than like, you know, how he uh, might appear on, on record and stuff like that. But, yeah, both 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 good dudes um, in, in terms of my interactions. But, you know, so going back to um, Nas and Dela, you know, so so Ninth goes on to make the point. He says that if you went with the on the De La Soul route, uh, it took you down a path. Uh, it you know, it got you to Dilla and Dilla took you to Common because, you know, Common in 1999 releases like Water for Chocolate and Dilla was had a heavy hand in production on that, doing it, and Thelonious, and you know a lot of tracks, um, and it led you to Most Def, and then to Sound Bombing, and the whole raucous thing, and you were on a very different path, a different had a different, um, you know, you were part of a different collective of fans. Nas, you know, did the the high uh, high budget videos, was on the radio, and it took you down a different path with that too. Um, and so it, his point was that it fractured. And that's something that, that I, I really resonated with me. But did that resonate with you at the time, too, when it was covered? A little bit. You know, I yeah, the, the, the image that I have, which was year 2000, so four years after it, I was living in Pittsburgh, 16 year old kid. Spitkicker tour came to town and Up and Smoke came to town the same week. I, I think I've said before in this podcast is the same night. I got up mad early this morning and was trying to look to verify that. And I think they were a couple of days apart, but I remember I had an opportunity to go to both. And I chose Spitkicker, which was De La, Common, uh, Bismarcky Open, and I want to say Pharaoh Manch, Reflection Eternal maybe as well. Um, and I, I say all that to say, I, I do think that there becomes mainstream slash gangster and then independent slash underground. And I mean, not for nothing, De La Soul is, is on Tommy Boy Records still at the time, which is, you know, very distributed by Warner Brothers. You know, they're in a similar chamber, but all of a sudden it seemed like the, the playing fields change. And there's one other factor to that. And, and again, Justin brought this up in a, in a 2017 editorial, something I never realized was happening at the time. You may have just as somebody um, 
you know, who was in media at the time and has a legal background. But in 1996, in February, there was the Telecommunications Act, which lifted the cap on radio station ownership, allowing major conglomerates, i.e. like Clear Channel, um, to standardize radio playlists around the country. Do you, like, like, you know, you were in business, living a life. Do you remember that happening? Do you remember the immediate effects of that? So I remember that happening. I, I remember it was Bill Clinton that did it. For me, I think the the bigger implications were around uh, digital media because I think that I might be wrong, but I think that that's also uh, the time that fair use was allowed, and so um, and that like allowed for YouTube and um, you know all these you know, user generated content platforms to exist because what it said was that if 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 this is the the same one uh, I might be wrong, but I'll tell you what what that bill stood for it it allowed people to say okay the platform is not going to be held responsible for content that users upload. So it, it allowed for the existence of YouTube and, you know, um, TikTok and all these other platforms that are fed by users, um, because otherwise they would get be sued by cop for copyright infringement and none of that content could exist. And so that was a much bigger implication. Like, yeah, for hip hop, like sure, huge. But like what that allowed for was the creation of you know, hundred million, hundred billion dollar companies, you know, like um, they would not exist without that. So. I was looking at it from that standpoint. I did not realize the implication that Justin talked about, which was it allowed for, uh, uh, it reduced the, uh, the cap on, you know, what uh, the number of radio stations that any single entity could own. And so it meant that certain conglomerates could come in and buy up radio stations across the country. And it basically consolidated radio from, you know, tens if not hundreds of different stations owned by different companies and having regional like uh, playlists and things like that to making it so that uh, a few like call it two or three mega companies own playlist uh, radio stations across all the country and they standardize the playlist kind of like what MTV did um, and made it more national and so instead of having you know hundreds of songs on playlists on radio suddenly you had 10 to 20 across the country. And that was just a game changer. Yeah, and I, I mean, to me, I'm not disagreeing with Justin, but I think that's a butterfly effect. Um, you know, I can remember in 99, 2000, and I lived in Pittsburgh and our hip hop station was Whammo, which I believe was the oldest black owned radio station in the country for a time. Um, you know, on mix show, you would hear Afura, you would hear West Side Connection, you know, deep cuts, like at mix show after, I think it was nine o'clock or eight o'clock, Radio was wild and free. And now, you know, even being in Philly where we have several markets, it's not that. Like, you know, even just watching the progression of the last 15 years of, you know, hearing Jack Frost come up in freestyle, you're not going to hear that anymore. And we've talked about that. But I don't think to me where I was living at the time, the 1996 switch flicked. But I think over time, you're right, we've gotten to a universal playlist and DJs don't have the power to break records anymore, which of course is going to affect a De La Soul a lot more than it will a Nas. So I agree with that. You know, uh, there was a difference between what you heard on um, like, you know, the main FM radio stations versus what you heard on a college radio show. You know, uh, there was a difference between what you heard on what were called Churban formats back then, which was basically... Um, uh, stations catering toward, um, you know, um, white listeners that 
liked hip hop and played more poppy type rap that you weren't going to hear a black moon. You'd hear like uh, a young MC. Arrested Development. A tone, Arrested Development, exactly. Or the Fugees or Diggable Planets. Um, and so uh, there were divides already for sure, even on radio at that time. Those were, those were you know, even in the 80s, you had Tone Loke and, you know, uh, Hammer, and Vanilla Ice versus like, you know, Queen Latifah and um, EPMD and, and, you know, stuff like that, that you would hear only on like um, black owned stations or, or, you know, in rap, like uh, mixed mix shows. So yeah, those divides were always there. I, th I, I agree with you. I think 1996 was the catalyst. And it was not only that legislation which consolidated radio, but also the advent of the internet, which allowed for, you know, infinite, types of music to be um, put out there. And, you know, Knife made that point too. He talked about there being, you know, sites like hiphopsite.com and underground hip hop. 88 hip hop. 88 hip hop. And, you know, I had a company called New Rules, which was the precursor to Ambrosia for Heads, which was in that space too. And also you had Napster pop up and you had the entire world's music catalog at your disposal, at your fingertips. And so I think it was a bunch of different things. It was a progression, not a single event that caused this fracture. Um, but, you know, it's, it's cool to like look at moments in time that may have like blown it up and sparked it. But sometimes I think that that blunts the nuance of the actual evolution of things over time. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Ninth. I agree with Nori. I agree with Justin on one part. I think the year is 96 and it, it kind of starts in 95 and you alluded to it using Nas as, as an example, but I think you have a new class of artists that are coming in that have been hip hop heads, whether they wore backpacks or not. Jay-Z is one of them. Um, and they come in and they come in with an aspirational, maybe mafioso style. Nas progressed from Illmatic Nas to it was written, whether that was production, whether that was Hype Williams, whether that was getting managed by Steve Stout, there's a number of factors there. Um, Biggie goes from Biggie, you know, to the notorious B.I.G. on Bad Boy, um, going from a guy who had a demo at Uptown with Premiere and, you know, Easy Moby and all of that to Puffy's Hitmen and wearing big suits and the, you know, Gucci shades, Versace shades and and, you know, you see that progress itself by the time you have life after death and even junior mafia mob deep same way. Um, you know, you can make the case with Snoop Dogg, too. It's not specific to just the East Coast. Everyone started to come into these figures. And, you know, I think it it, it played better in the media. You know, I think a lot of folks were trying to hook into these narratives, be it just just gangster rap, period, or East versus West or all of this. And all of a sudden you've got some of the best artists in hip hop that are reinventing themselves. And then you have people like De La Soul or like Black Moon that are like, no, nah, we're comfortable in who we are. And yes, we're evolving, but I don't want to be that. And I think that that chasm widens over time. But I 100% think it's 96. And, and the best thing is, is you have artists in the years that follow, you know, I think of Wu-Tang, I think of Gangstar, um, Red, uh, Redman, you know, folks that can walk those lines and play in both worlds. And a lot of those artists are the ones that are still very much around and have really interesting, sustainable careers. Tribe Called Quest, you know? So I think 96 is critical. I agree with you there. Uh, I don't think it was the start. I think it was the tipping point. So mm -hmm. 
there were divides before that, long before 96, right? So, uh, and I'll go kind of in reverse order. You had the stuff that you would hear on Rap City versus the stuff that you would see on Yo! MTV Raps. There was a clear divide. Um, and, you know, uh, there were artists that were uh, too black for MTV, uh, to just to put it bluntly. Then you also had, you know, I, you know, I talked about this earlier, the notion of real versus fake hip hop, you know, in 88, you know, Gasface comes out where third base is lampooning Hammer and Young MC and all these guys and Vanilla Ice, those guys are getting huge pop radio. You go back to Run DMC and BC Boys and the difference in treatment for them. It would go back maybe even to the very beginning of, you know, recorded rap. Uh, well, and we'll get to that in a second, but the biggest, you know, first uh, commercial rap single, um, recognized rap, Rapper's Delight, you know, uh, was big, but to people who were actually doing the culture, unlike, you know, Sugar Hill Gang, and we all know that history, Grandmaster Kaz and people like that were frowning upon that as not being real. So I think there's been divides for a long time between commercial and, and underground, you know, and 96 was a great uh, like catalyzer for that, fracturing off in an even bigger way, but I, I don't think it was the beginning. That's a really good point. And I don't think, you know, I disagree with Nori. I don't think it was the roots, you know, intent. And I don't think that video had that kind of, um, you know, shot heard around the world effect. I think it was something, again, to quote Quali, he took personally. But that, you know, you look at it again, that same year, you know, Jeru, the damage you made, you're playing yourself and created a dividing line of some of the same people he was using the same studio with, you know, going at Puffy and Biggie and just being like, nah. And you see more of these songs, um, you know, Black Star made Children's Story, um, Black Alicious had Deception, you know, Dead Prez, hip hop. There's a series of songs and you spoke of it. Anytime an artist common, you know, I used to love her, steps up and questions the hip hop identity, there's always going to be somebody that takes umbrage with that. Um, and that's interesting. And that, you know, that happens to this day. You know, I, that happened with Nas in 20, 2006 when he declared hip hop is dead, you know, as an artful statement. And people said, you know, maybe for you, Nas, but, you know, like that. So Yeah. So 